Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. Well, welcome again. My name's Tyler. I'm one of the elders down at uh, City Light Glenelg. If I haven't met you yet, it's really good to be here again at North Adelaide and worshipping with this family, and we're going to get into the Word. We've been in the book of Acts. We've been in the middle of this series that we've titled Unstoppable, How God Uses the Church, His Family, His Children, um, Gathered in Community to Change the World. And we're up to chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, we finished off at verse 11 uh, last week. So we're going to pick up at verse 12 and just read five verses tonight, just five verses. Um, So... The message will uh, be short, or maybe, maybe, we'll see. No, five verses, uh, 12 to 16. Let me read. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible, so you can follow along. Many signs and wonders were being done among the people through the hands of the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared to join them, but the people spoke well of them. Believers were added to the Lord, increasing numbers, multitudes of both men and women. As a result, they would carry the sick out into the streets and lay them on cots and mats so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. In addition, a multitude came together from the towns surrounding Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this text, this little snapshot into what you were doing by the power of your Holy Spirit in the very early days of the church, of this family whose heritage is is our heritage. Lord, would you teach us by that same Spirit who was doing these works of healing and deliverance, would you come now, Holy Spirit, and teach us your word sanctify us in truth. Lord, we want to hear from you. And we pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. So, the text, this little short text we've read today is all about science. It's about people being healed, people being freed from demonic possession. And these supernatural miracles are sort of put under this category, this subheading of signs and wonders. So what is a sign? And what's a sign? In common usage, signs are the billboards and placards around the place that give us directions and labels and information that we may or may not need. We see signs everywhere. I've got an example for us to have a look at. This is how often many of us think of signs. Um, They can be helpful. They can not be helpful. Um, I, I I don't always like to be in a place where I need to read signs and labels. Because if I'm needing to read a sign or a label, it means that I'm in some place that's not familiar, or I'm, I'm using some or sort of looking at some product that I'm, unf- that I'm not familiar with, so I'm having to read the directions and figure out where, what street I'm on. You know, no, none of us, you know, when you're driving home tonight, you're not going to have to ask Siri for directions to your house. You're not going to have to look at the signs and go, is that... Is that my street? I'm not really sure, unless you just moved in like today. We like familiar. If we find ourselves in a place where we're having to read the signs really carefully, it's because we're, we're in a place where we're a bit uncomfortable and unfamiliar. 
You know, I don't know if you've ever had that experience of being in a familiar place. Like, say you've got, I don't know, how many of you have like a favorite cafe or someplace you like to go eat from time to time? A few of you, all right? Have you ever had that experience of like you're walking up to this cafe and you, you get, you know, a little ways from the door and all, you kind of look and you, you notice on the door a sign. That sign's not normally there. And you're thinking, hmm, what could that sign possibly say? Please don't say that you've closed. Please don't say that you've closed. Because, you know, you see a sign, it's not normally there. You're like, what's going on? You start to feel a little bit nervous because it's not familiar. When you're in unfamiliar territory, however, you might have a different attitude towards signs. Because a sign, a well-placed, well-written sign, can save your life. It might warn you of imminent danger. In unfamiliar situations, signs can very often save you a lot of time and frustrations. They can sometimes even bring a tremendous sense of joy and relief because of what they're pointing to. There's an example of that I, I can remember a few years back when my uh, kids were very young, driving at night. Out, we were out in the country. We were driving to Melbourne. trying to. We were going to catch a flight back to China where we were living at the time. And uh, we were almost out of petrol, and it was night, and it was raining, the light was on, and, and I was like, we had no, we didn't have phones with us, so we didn't know how far until the next town or anything like that, and I'm thinking, oh man, this is not good, and we're driving, and then just, you know, because you can see a long way out in the country, and just seeing that red-green glow off in the distance of like, oh, yes, we are saved, we're rescued, we're not going to be stranded on the side of the road. Um, we saw the sign, and it brought a tremendous sense of joy and relief. It was exactly what we were looking for. The text we read today from Acts 5 is a short description of what was going on in the early church during the time of the apostles. It's an interlude. It's sandwiched in between these two dramatic episodes, the one we looked at last week of uh, two people who were guilty of hypocrisy and lying to the Holy Spirit, and God strikes them dead right there in public. And everyone was in awe and fearful of what had just taken place. And then what follows next week is a story of persecution, actual, the very first example of physical persecution against Christians that's recorded in Acts. And right here in between is this little section about the explosion or proliferation of signs and wonders being done among the people through the hands of the apostles. That's what it says in verse 12. And so today, I want to ask two basic questions of this text. Question one, why does Luke, the author of Acts, include this section in here? Why is it there? And then second, what does it have to say to us today? Now, that's, those are kind of the normal two questions that we often ask of the Bible when we read it. But I think those questions are particularly significant for this little paragraph for us now. It's, is it just a description of what happened then that, oh, that was, that's a nice little, you know, background, but it's not really relevant to us? Or is it telling us something that we need to know and believe and act on now for God's glory to be revealed among us and for our joy to increase? So let's look at these questions one at a time. First, why is it here? Why does Luke take the time to record this description of what was going on in the background of the story of Peter and the apostles? I want to give you four reasons, and there are probably more than four, but here are four that I'm going to just highlight for us tonight why Luke includes this text. The first thing you notice in verse 12 
is that there's not just a sign or a wonder being done, but many, many. There's an emphasis on the, the volume of signs and wonders that are taking place. And these signs and wonders are being done publicly among the people, it says. You don't have to buy a ticket to see it. You don't have to go in some dark alley somewhere. It's, they're being done out in public. The miracles are happening, it says, in Solomon's colonnade, which was this huge public area space on the eastern side of the temple. Um, maybe the, it would, been, would have been the equivalent of, like, say, Rundle Mall in Jerusalem, in that day. It was a huge gathering place, and there were worshipers there, there were non-worshippers there, there were Jews, there were Greeks, there were men and women, there were just a whole assortment of people. And Luke is showing us that what the apostles are doing there was a continuation of what Jesus had been doing previously. Peter highlights this in Acts chapter 2. I'm going to just jump back to Acts 2 verse 22 where Peter says this in his sermon. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Do you see the parallel there? Signs, wonders, mighty works. Where did they take place? In your midst. How did they take place? Through him. Now, instead of through him, the only difference is now they are through the hands of the apostles. You see, there's a, a direct line between the works of Jesus and the works of the apostles, and they're happening out in public, these healings, casting out demons, raising the dead. Jesus did these things in your midst, and now here in 5, verse 12, the apostles are doing these miracles among the people. Solomon's colonnade, again, I mentioned, was a, a central public gathering place. It was the very same spot where Peter preached to the crowd just after he healed the man who was paralyzed back in chapter 3. Um, the apostles are just picking up where Jesus left off. And in fact, these signs and wonders that they're speaking about didn't start with Jesus. Do you know where that expression, signs and wonders, comes from? Where it first shows up in the story of the Bible? You've got to go back to Exodus. Exodus chapter 7, in fact. God comes and is speaking to Moses and Aaron, and he tells them that he will multiply, he uses the word multiply, signs and wonders in the land of Egypt as he is preparing to rescue them from slavery. And that's exactly what he did. God brought signs of judgment on the nation of Egypt, sign after sign, plague after plague. And finally, Pharaoh relents and, and lets the people go, but after the whole land was just devastated by these signs and wonders. And so now, in the time of Jesus and the apostles, God comes again seeking to, you know, have a evoke a response among people who are lost, among sinners, among people who are rebellious. He is wooing them to repentance with these signs. He's getting their attention both signs of judgment, like we saw last week with Ananias and Sapphira dropping dead for their hypocrisy, and now this week we're looking at signs of mercy, healing, deliverance, and the like. So the first reason Luke includes this description is to show that apostles were simply continuing the work that God's been doing all along, through the prophets, through Jesus, and now through the apostles in the church. He wants to show His glory through signs. And now the second reason that he 
includes this little description is to highlight that these signs and wonders were, in fact, answers, direct answers to prayer. What do I mean by that? Well, if you go back to chapter 4, you see Peter and John, they've been sort of detained by the authorities and questioned, and they get released, and they go back to the church. They go back to the church gathering, and they pray. This amazing prayer that's recorded in chapter 4, verse 29 and 30. And here's what they pray. They say, and now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your servants, that's them, us, the apostles, that we may speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. In other words, God, help us preach the gospel boldly. Notice they didn't pray, God, please keep us safe, protect us, make them stop hurting us, make us comfortable, make our life easy. They didn't pray any of that. They said, God, help us to preach boldly and then confirm our preaching with signs and wonders that only you can do. That was their prayer. And here in chapter 5, that prayer is being answered. This is why, guys, that when we, we say this, we've called this whole series Unstoppable. This is, this is a description of a battle that's taking place as the kingdom of light, the kingdom of heaven is breaking into the kingdom of darkness. This is what it looks like on the front lines. This, this is the fight. These are the weapons that they've been given to fight with. Not swords, not missiles, not bombs, not guns, but the preaching of the word and the works of God. The Word of God and the works of God. That's the weapons that they've been given. And these weapons are remarkably effective. They were effective in the days of Jesus. Now they're effective in the days of the apostles. And they're effective today. This is the new reality that's breaking in. Another thing Luke highlights in this passage we see in verses 13 and 14. It's the response to these signs. And the response of the people to the signs and wonders. It mimics the response of people everywhere to God. We see a response of both fear and faith. Both fear and faith. Verse 13, you see that there are, whole, there are people that says they did not dare to approach the gathering. You know, so there's this group of people that they're, they're kind of afraid, and they're keeping their distance. So they didn't speak poorly. They kind of thought highly of the, the gathered Christians, but they didn't want to get in their midst because, and we don't really know why. Maybe they were afraid because they just saw, they heard about Ananias and Sapphira dropping dead, and they're like, whoa, I don't want any part of that. Or maybe they were afraid because of the threats that the leaders had been making. They're saying, man, if you get caught with these Christians, then, you know, we'll We'll kick you out of the synagogue, or we'll, you know, you'll lose your job, or you'll lose your status in society. So maybe that's why they were afraid. They didn't want to get disinvited from parties. You know, maybe they kept their distance because they just saw and recognized the, the power of God, and they were just like, whoa, that's just, I'll just be over here and doing my thing, and I'll let you do your thing, and that's, maybe that's why. See, the point is that these genuine signs and wonders, when the power of God is on display, some people will be afraid. And, and, and this is a human thing. You go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve, our first parents, when they sinned against God, when they rebelled against God, they knew it. What did they do? They hid when they heard God's voice. And that's a human reaction. We, in, in our sin, 
We don't desire God. We don't want him to come near. We want to keep a distance from him. And that's what we see here. The same response that people have to God is the response people are having to the church. That's how we know these signs are genuine. But then in verse 14, it says that the number of those who were believing, men and women, was increasing. Multitudes, it says, of people are being added to the church family in increasing numbers. So what's the secret to making the power of God more palatable to people so that they want to embrace it rather than hide from it? There's only one secret, and it's the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart, and, and we don't control that. We don't control Him. That's His work. Let me point out one final reason why I think Luke includes this section. It's, I call it a preview of coming attractions. You know, when you go to the movies, you, usually we kind of complain about having to sit through a lot of ads and previews, and because they just keep getting longer, I feel like, as I get older. I don't know. Maybe they don't. Maybe I'm just more, less patient as I get older. Katrina and I, we actually went to a movie on Valentine's Day at 10 past 10 in the morning, and we were the youngest people there um, by a lot, a lot. Um, but the, the 10 past 10 is when it's, you know, that's what the ticket said. When the movie actually started was uh, 10.35 was scene one. That's 25 minutes. I looked. I'm going to watch. 25 minutes of ads and previews. So normally we're just like, oh, I'm paying for this, and it's a waste of my time. But in reality, the life that we're living now, in many ways, is a preview of the life to come. This is not the, the main event. This is not the feature presentation. But we get a little glimpses, tastes of eternity. Every, you know, experience that we have now of pain, wrestling with sin, suffering, is, is a reminder and a preview of the ultimate fate of those who die apart from knowing Jesus and being saved and included in his family. Every experience now of, of hope and mercy and grace and joy is, is, is a preview of what we will experience forever for those who are in the family and have been saved by the blood of Jesus. And that's what we see here, man. Luke gets the balance right. And I just want to point this out because I think it's, it's really important to see um, the balance here. It, early in chapter 5, you see this judgment sign. And remember, I, you know, signs and wonders, there are judgment signs, there are mercy signs. But look at the, look at the balance, look at the volume. Early in chapter 5, there's two people that are killed for their hypocrisy. That's a judgment sign, and fear comes on the entire church. And then immediately after that, in verse 12, you see this explosion of signs, which are, all of them are mercy signs, okay? Two people die for their rebellion. Multitudes upon multitudes of people are getting healed and getting delivered and, and, are, and are being forgiven of sin. Do you see the balance? Mercy triumphing over judgment. That is a preview of what is to come. In the church, in the church, I'm not talking about in the world, I'm not preaching that everybody gets saved and in the end, it all works out in the end. I'm saying in the church, in the community of faith, mercy outweighs judgment every single time because that is what eternity will be like for those who believe. For now, we do believe that suffering has a purpose for believers, but suffering is temporary. Paul calls it light and momentary when we remember that well, this is just the previews. 
the main event's still to come. And John describes it for us beautifully in Revelation 21, verse 4. You may have heard this before. This is eternity. He says, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away, done, finished, forever. That's what the previews are pointing to, every mercy sign, every healing. It's never an end in itself. It's never to be sought after for its own sake, but it's a gift that points us and other people to the glorious Revelation 21 reality that is to come, that one day we won't ever have to pray for healing again. One day, the only tears that flow are going to be tears of joy. So what about us now? What should we, like the early church in Acts, pray for and expect these kinds of signs and wonders to be happening around us? Or should we just wait and see what God does? Take kind of a passive approach? Are miracles, praying for them and performing them, are they essential to the Christian life, or are they only for just the few very spiritual people? What's the relationship between miracles and mission? I mean, these are just some of the questions that the text raises for today, and I'm not going to even get to answer all of these in the time that we have, but perhaps the most important of these questions, should we be praying for these signs and wonders now? Should we be praying for an explosion of these signs and wonders across the scene today? Should we be asking God to heal people of physical and mental illnesses supernaturally, as well as through uh, medicine and through other um, techniques that He has given to us? What about delivering people from spiritual oppression? Should we be praying for that? Should we pray that people in the church have special insight from God into situations that can only come from Him? Should we be praying for other kinds of miracles, for jail shackles to crack open and Christians to be released from prison? Should we pray for even bigger miracles, like maybe an Adelaide football team winning the flag this year? Should we, should we pray for powerful signs to confirm our message so that even the most resistant people have to pay attention to the message of the gospel? Some of you might think these are obvious questions to answer. You know, well, Jesus in the early church did these things, so of course we should do these things. They pray for signs and wonders, so should we. But I want to I back up a little bit because this is, I think, will be helpful for us as we read through the Gospels, as we read through Acts. One of the mistakes we can make with reading the Gospels and preaching the Gospels and the book of Acts, which are narrative, is that these narr- a narrative is meant to be descriptive. It tells us what happened. This happened in history. It does not necessarily tell us what should have happened, or what should happen now. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't, and we have to discern the difference. So, for example, here in chapter 5, verse 15, tells us what happened. People carried sick people on mats and laid them out in the streets so that Peter's shadow might fall over some of them and heal them. But is Luke telling us that's what should have happened? In other words, should we be doing this today? Should we get some bright lights and put them up on the ceiling and have like, you know, Jacko and the elder candidates and a few people on the prayer team that are really spiritual kind of just walk around and have their shadows fall on us and we'll all be healed? Is that what Luke is saying? Is that why it's here? Well, I don't think so. But how do we know? How do we know that Luke's not trying to teach us a technique for healing that we can just copy? Well, we need to go back to where we started. Why does Luke put this here in the first place? 
to show us, I think, that God is the one who's at work here, to show us that continuity. We've got the line of continuity from Moses to Jesus, now the apostles, and down to us. And if you, if you think of it in that terms, you know that he's not saying that Peter's hands or Peter's shadow were magic. You know, in the book of James, where it tells us that, you know, for if any, is anyone among you sick, then he should call the elders to lay hands on that person, to anoint them with oil. He's not saying that the elders' hands or that the oil contains some sort of magic power. No, see, Luke is making the case here and James is making the case there that it is the power of God that is strong and effective. The apostles, they didn't even know. Peter didn't even know how many people he was healing. That's the point of the whole the shadow thing. It's like Peter's not even being intentional. He's just out walking, you know, getting his groceries or something, and, somebody, and he's like stepping over a sick person, and he has no idea that that person has been intentionally placed there for healing. Because the power isn't, it's not about Peter even and his own intentionality. It's the power of God that is operating through Peter that is doing the healing. That's what Luke is trying to emphasize. The X factor in healing here is the power of God, period. We can pray for it. We can make ourselves available, but he is the one who has the power to do miracles, not us. So what's the application? What do we do with this? I think we can safely say that the book of Acts and the Gospels, we, we can't, we're not, you know, mining this for some secret healing techniques that we can copy. We go to the Word of God looking not for techniques, but for God who heals and the apostles, see, Peter and the apostles in the early church, they knew this God. They sought this God. They asked for him to show up, to show his power, his mercy, so that his glory would be on display. And, and, and sinful and rebellious people would be awed into repentance and belief in Jesus. That's what they lived for. So believers would receive mercy in their time of need. One way to avoid... Um, going wrong by turning descriptions into prescriptions is to look for patterns and similar passages in other parts of the Bible. So in Acts, people in the church, they prayed for signs and wonders and God answered their prayer. But were they right to pray this way? Well, Paul, in, in the Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1, and see, he says this, and this is not a narrative description. This is a command, an instruction to follow. And he says this, he says, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. And the ESV and other translations add the word earnestly desire or eagerly desire spiritual gifts. The gifts he's referring to are the so-called sign gifts, which he defines back in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. And these include words of wisdom and knowledge, uh, gifts of healing, performing of miracles, prophecy, discernment, speaking in unknown tongues, and interpretation of tongues. These are the signs that Paul is saying to Christians, earnestly pursue and desire these things to show up in the church. Why? So that God might be made big, that he might be lifted up and glorified as his power is on display in our weakness, so that his children might receive and delight in the mercy and goodness of God. So when the early Christians in Acts prayed for signs and wonders to come, they were praying a good and right and God-exalting 
prayer that we can pray. We can pray for signs and wonders and for healing and miracles and like so that God might be supremely powerful and big and good and beautiful in the world and so that we might receive his abundant mercy as a preview of the inheritance to come. I don't know what your experience or background is when it comes to the sign gifts like healing and miracles and prophecy. Some of you may have never thought about it before, and that's okay. So we come to the Word of God to kind of expand our vision of who He is and how He works. Others of you may have come from a background where signs and wonders were talked about and practiced constantly, maybe to an unhealthy extreme that says like, well, you're not really a Christian or your church is not a real church unless these things are happening all the time. I don't agree with that. I don't think Scripture teaches that. We can talk about that if you disagree with me. We can talk later. Some of you may have come from a cessationist background, a cessationist background that says that, you know, signs and wonders, the sign gifts had their place then in the book of Acts, but now they're, they're not really, uh, you know, we have the Scripture and that's what we need. Um, and so God can heal people, but there is no such thing as a gifts of healing anymore. Um, I won't argue with you on that if that's where you're at. Where you're at, I won't tell you that you're wrong about that. I'll just let Martin Lloyd Jones do that. Um, circa 1966, I've got him up there. He says this. He says it is perfectly clear that in New Testament times the gospel was authenticated in this way by signs, wonders, miracles of various characters and descriptions. Was it only meant to be true of the early church? Scriptures never, anywhere, say that these things were only temporary. Never. There's no such statement anywhere. All right. There you go. Some of you might be a bit nervous right now because you have seen and experienced the sign gifts being abused. You've seen people obsessing over miracles. You've heard about people who get shamed into thinking they're not Christians because they don't speak in tongues or, you know, that you, don't, you didn't get healed because you don't have enough faith and all that nonsense. Not good enough in some way. And I, I hear your concern and I share your concern and I want to alleviate it with just two, these two statements, and we're going to unpack them. Statement number one, signs, signs and wonders, miracles, are not the end goal. Jesus, joy in Jesus is the end goal. Statement number one. And then statement number two, genuine signs and wonders and miracles will always have the intended effect of making Jesus big and increasing our joy in him. Remember, I, I said before I, about that time that I saw that, you know, glowing servo sign off in the distance when I was almost out of petrol on a lonely highway at night in the rain. Lots of feelings were happening at that moment, feelings of relief and joy. Now, just picture that, being in the car, if you, if you were there with me in the car that day and with my kids, and, 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 and imagine if I was to get up to that, that sign, I, I've, I've got there, and to if I was to get out of the car and run up to the sign and just kind of grab it and, and just hug the base of that sign and say, thank you, thank you, thank you, and just kind of camp out there, you'd be like, okay, that's kind of weird. Because what's the point of a sign? The point of a sign is not to be embraced for its own sake. The point of a sign is to point you to something. In that case, it was to point us to the fuel that we needed so that we could reach our destination. I, I think signs are, are, are the same, you know, serve the same purpose in the Christian church. Signs are not 
ends in themselves. They are good gifts, but they are meant to point to something beyond themselves, the fuel of Jesus that will take you to your destination. That's why these signs exist. So when God heals a body, that healing is always meant to lead to the healing of a soul. A healed body joined to a self-worshipping, world-obsessed soul will eventually perish. But a healed body joined to a soul that delights in Jesus will never perish but have eternal life. You get the difference? You might experience a miracle in your life, a physical healing, a supernatural insight, an answer to prayer. But if that doesn't lead you to worship and treasure Jesus, the giver of that gift, above everything else and to trust him alone, then you might as well be standing out on a country road hugging a sign that has no power to save your life. Because the signs aren't the end goal. Joy in Jesus is the end goal. He is the life-saving fuel that the signs point to. Now, that was statement number one, so let's look at statement number two. Genuine signs and wonders will always have the intended effect of making Jesus big and increasing our joy in him. So let's do, again, a little biblical theology. Go back to the very first time signs and wonders show up in the Bible. Back again to Exodus 7. Here's the exact words that God says to Moses. Here they are. Exodus 7, starting in verse 3. God says, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Pharaoh will not listen to you, but I will put my hand into Egypt and bring the military divisions of my people, the Israelites, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the Israelites from among them. So what are these signs and wonders designed to do? What is their effect? Well, there was judgment there on, the, on Pharaoh and the Egyptians and mercy for God's people. Judgment for his enemies, mercy for his people. He says, and even the Egyptians, my enemies, even they will know that I am the Lord. After the ten plagues occurred, that's exactly what happened. The God of Israel is the only one with power to save. He's the only one who has power over creation. None of the idols can do anything. None of the magicians and the sorcerers and land, the ones that could even, you know, they could counterfeit some of these signs and wonders, but they could not match the power of God. That's what these signs were declaring in these bright LED lights. Now, fast forward here to the time of the early church in Acts 5. What's happening is these signs and wonders are displayed to the ministry of Peter and the apostle. Verse 14, multitudes of men and women are coming to faith in Jesus and being added to the family. Signs didn't save anyone. They weren't the end goal. But what did they do? They took lost, sinful people, dead in sins, and by the Holy Spirit took the heart of stone and shattered it so that that heart was able to look at Jesus and see him as good and glorious and true. That was what these signs and wonders did shattering the shell of unbelief that many would come to know and believe and have joy in him. And then for believers, these signs, these mercy signs of healing and deliverance, 
they just increase their joy, remembering that these are the good gifts that come from the Father who loves you, who loves you, who loves you. And so that's how we should pray. We pray for signs and wonders from the hand of God that will make him big in the eyes of the world, that will shatter the shell of unbelief. Many would come to know and believe and have joy in him and that we, that our joy would increase as he answers our prayers and comforts and teaches our souls. One day we saw before everything that's sad will be done, come untrue, as we see him face to face. That's the full inheritance, but for now, we get to experience this foretaste, this preview of what's to come. So let's pray and wait patiently and expectantly for this, for these previews of eternal life now, for these good gifts. Pray that he would stretch out his hand just like he did in the days of Moses, just like he did in the days of Elijah, just like he did in the days of Jesus, just like he did in the days of Peter, that he would do it now, that he would be made big and worthy in the eyes of those who don't yet believe, that our joy in him would increase as he gives gift upon gift, grace upon grace, mercy new every single morning. Imagine if this community were to be of that one mind as we pray, all of us wanting God to be made big by every means possible to increase our joy through the preaching, bold preaching of the gospel, and just praying and asking God to stretch out his hand to show these signs and wonders in our midst. You know, the fruit, at least at first, it might be a season of rejection by the world. See, it's far better to be rejected by the world knowing that his mercy and joy will satisfy hungry souls forever. I want to say just a brief word to those of us who have prayed for things like healing, for people to come to believe, for these miracles to take place, and we're still waiting. There's still hope. While there is still hope, Jesus, you know, he wants you to keep praying, keep asking, keep trusting, knowing that he is able knowing that our ultimate hope, our ultimate joy is not in a sign, is not in a particular outcome, but in Him. We almost never can understand why God may not grant healing in a particular situation or in a particular way or at a particular time. And if somebody tries to tell you they know exactly why God has chosen to do this or not do that, they, my suggestion would be to listen to someone else. Because we know that from Scripture that if you're a Christian, if you've trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, then his wrath has already been removed from you and it's been placed on Jesus. Your future is secure. Your identity is, you're his child. He loves you. That is what is true. And so if he doesn't immediately heal you or the person you love or if the healing comes in eternity then pray for him to work miracles in other ways. Maybe it's the miracle of endurance and joy in the midst of suffering. Jesus can be made big when his mercy falls on the sick and they're healed, but he can be made big when we cling to him in faith, even when we don't receive that inheritance in this life. 
See, the world can't copy that kind of joy. The world can't copy that kind of faith. Only God can work that kind of miracle in your heart. But I want us to pray as a community, like the early church, our heritage. I want us to pray tonight as a family for these signs and wonders, for these miracles, signs of healing, physical healing, spiritual healing, signs that confirm the message of the gospel, signs that make Jesus big and increase our joy. If you tonight have a particular need for prayer, healing for yourself, for someone you love, or for God to rescue somebody from sin and self-destruction, or God to help you crucify and kill a particular sin in your own life, if your need is for, to have endurance in a trial that you are facing, then we want to pray for you as a community tonight. And we don't normally do this, but we want to create space now in the service for that, for, for, for you. So we're going to ask you to maybe be a little bold, and actually, if that's you and you would like someone to pray for you, we're going to actually ask you in just a moment to, to actually come forward. And, and, and just, you know, in this front area here, and, and there'll be people that can pray. So if those of you who are elder candidates, you're on the prayer team, or if you just, you know, feel the Spirit prompting you to pray, please come and pray as people come forward. And if no one comes forward, that's okay too. We just want you to be led. Um, for those of you who, who don't, who are, remain in your seats, then just be praying for those who do come. We... we, we Pray, we bear each other's burdens. This is one way we do it, by praying for each other. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We mourn with those who mourn. When one part of the body suffers, we all suffer together. And we want to we do this corporately as we pray. We want to pray that Jesus in this, that he would be big in our midst, that our joy might increase, that Adelaide might know that he is the one true God, Pray for God to add multitudes to his family. So we're going to do that now in this space. I'm just going to ask the band to, to come up and, and play for a little bit. And while they do, if you would like someone to pray for you, then please just come. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.